citizens of Rome called the emperor king. Remember that in John's gospel, when Pilate presented Jesus to the crowd and said, Behold your king, they answered, We have no king but Caesar. Caesar was king. We call the Roman Empire an empire, but they thought of it as the Roman kingdom. We have to start here with this reminder to get the full impact of this scene and of Jesus' whole ministry. For anyone to call himself king, besides the reigning monarch in Rome or their loyal lackey king, is to commit high treason. That was exactly the risk that Jesus took when he made his primary message the proclamation that God was king. Jesus' central message was that God's kingdom was a present fact, and it was a direct challenge to local King Herod and ultimately to King Caesar himself. Some scholars attempt to highlight that explicit challenge by translating kingdom of God as empire of God. Either way, kingdom of God or empire of God, Jesus was making a direct challenge to the local kingdom of Herod and the ultimate kingdom of Caesar. The kingdom of God was Jesus' main theme. From the beginning of his ministry, as Mark's gospel describes it, Jesus came saying, repent or change your thinking. The kingdom of God is at hand. Frank Thomas in the Christian century gathered up this list. Jesus told his followers to seek ye first God's kingdom and righteousness. He told them, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. You are not far from the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Professor Thomas summed it up by saying, Luke records Jesus' words, quote, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because this is why I was sent. Jesus goes through every city and village preaching and demonstrating the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about God's reign more than he talks about anything else. The Romans liked to rule their conquered peoples by using their own local kings, which they did as long as those local kings were willing to be collaborative stooges for Rome. Herod the Great, the king when Jesus was born, was good at it. But when he died, his three sons split up the kingdom among themselves. The Herod of Jesus' adult life was Herod Jr., named Antipas. His brother, Archelaus, was so bad that he was sacked by Rome. Rome decided to rule directly by appointing a governor, Pontius Pilate, to replace him. Now, standing before Governor Pilate is Jesus, a peasant from the Galilee region who has been creating quite a stir. Pilate is trying to get to the bottom of it. How much of a threat is Jesus? He's a mystic and a healer, and so is very popular with the people, but is he more? He is clearly more. He made a public procession to the temple, which doubled as the national treasury and bank, the central shrine of this temple state to which tens of thousands of pilgrims come for Passover. Jesus had the audacity to shut the whole place down in a public demonstration. Why? What did he hope to achieve? What were he and his people planning next, Pilate is wondering. Particularly alarming to Pilate is that the crowds who attended the processional parade were chanting slogans that sounded treasonous. According to John's account, they shouted, Hosanna, meaning God save, I pray. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So, 
standing before Pilate, is a person whose whole career has been spent speaking of a kingdom and whose people have called him the king of Israel. Of course, Pilate is worried. Job number one for a Roman governor is to tamp down any hint of rebellion among its conquered people. Tamp down can, in a heartbeat, become stamp out with deadly force. So John tells us that Pilate asked Jesus straight out, Are you the king of the Jews? Which started the famous conversation that ended with Pilate's question, What have you done? Pilate knows very well what Jesus has done, literally, but what he is up to that the chief priests want him dead? The chief priests were in charge of running the temple bank. By shutting down the temple, at least symbolically, for an hour or two, Jesus has demonstrated his opposition to everything going on there. The chief priests were from aristocratic families who, like vultures, were picking clean the carcasses of the peasants. They were driving them into debt with their oppressive fees and then foreclosing on their families' land, leaving them destitute. You could not be for the people and not oppose that whole system. Jesus was for the people, and therefore he opposed that whole system. But his goal was not to overthrow that system by force. Maybe that is what the crowds would have wanted him to do, but that was not his way. Jesus completely eschewed violence, even in his own self-defense. But this creates a conundrum. How do you so oppose a corrupt, oppressive system that you're willing to make a public demonstration, as Jesus did, but then not take the next step of attacking it by force? Jesus' answer explains it. He told Pilate, My kingdom is not from this world. Jesus knows that Pilate might not buy that claim, of course, a captured revolutionary would say anything to keep his head on his shoulders, so Jesus offers proof. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. The next exchange shows that Pilate is confused. Jesus says that he has a kingdom, and he's willing to march into the temple bank and shut it down, but it is not an earthly kingdom. Does that make any sense? For Pilate, not yet. So he presses the issue. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. I'm not sure we should put a question mark after Pilate's words, So you are a king. Literally it says, Pilate said to him, not asked him, So you are a king. Greek has no punctuation, so there's no question mark available. That's an interpretation. But taking it as a flat statement makes Jesus' answer far more sensible. Pilate says, So, you are indeed a king. And Jesus replies, You say that I am. Jesus has been teaching that the kingdom of God is present for those who are willing to receive it, believe it, act on it. The kingdom of God is present whenever and wherever God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, which is exactly what the Lord's Prayer says. The proof that it is not like earthly kingdoms is that it eschews violence. If it were an earthly kingdom, it would have an army, and they would be storming the gates to set Jesus free. There is no army. Therefore, the kingdom is not earthly. But it does have earthly implications. Because getting God's will done 
as Jesus shows us, involves being on the side of justice, being on the side of the oppressed, opposing systems of domination and brutality. It means public nonviolent action. But the first task is to tell people the truth. Once people understand the truth coming from Jesus' voice, once they internalize it, then they're free. The truth will make you free, Jesus said. The truth can decolonize your mind. What was Jesus' truth? That all people everywhere are beloved children of God. All people are cared about by God more than the lilies of the field or the birds of the air. Therefore, all people are worthy of dignity and respect. All people deserve enough food and a place at the table of equals. That is the truth that can decolonize your mind. There is enough for everyone. There should be justice for everyone. Today, as much as in Jesus' day, we need to hear this truth. We hear so often the untruths that try to misdefine us in order to manipulate us. We hear that we are not enough, but that is not true. We are enough, just as we are. We are told that unless we have the newest products, the right body type, the whitest teeth, that we're missing something. We're told to think of ourselves not as mutually related human beings, but as consumers, as if consuming was our purpose and destiny, as if consuming ever constituted the life well lived for anyone. Jesus' truth is that we are more than citizens of Herod's kingdom or Caesar's kingdom. We are, are Christians, citizens of the kingdom of God. Our loyalties lie in a realm higher than the nations of the earth. No nation can claim our deepest allegiance. For us, all of them are subject to the moral law and responsible for acting justly. In our country, even our Pledge of Allegiance acknowledges that we are one nation under, not above, God. As citizens of God's kingdom, we will not carry water for any political party. We will hold all of them accountable to God, whether that is the popular position or not. Our commitment is to enact the truth as Jesus taught us. We also need to hear the truth that Jesus taught us, that there is hope because we are the people of God's kingdom. Therefore, even if the future is uncertain, even if things change, we have the hope that God is with us now and will be with us in the future. We have hope because the kingdom of God is at hand, that God, our heavenly parent, will give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We can decolonize our minds from the fear and anxiety that politicians keep serving up and instead live in trust and faith. This is what we're here in church for, to be nurtured and strengthened by word and sacrament, to listen to Jesus' voice, and to be radically Christian citizens of the kingdom of God.